Washington and is co-editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies. He served as an advisor to the Palestinian delegation to the Madrid and Washington Arab-Israeli peace negotiations from October 1991 until June 1993. He has eight books to his name, including The Hundred Years War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance from 1917 to 2017. And he also co-edited three others and published over 100 academic articles in New York Times, Washington Post, and other newspapers. And he appeared widely on TV and radio stations in the USAID. Dr. Khalidi, the floor is yours. You have 45 minutes. Thank you very much for this kind introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon to you, and may the blessings of God be upon you all. I would first of all like to express my gratitude to my colleagues who contributed to the uh, organizing of this uh, lecture between the Institute for Palestine for Palestine Studies and the Institute of Graduate Studies and this is a good sign which will consolidate the work of the both institutions and it's my pleasure to be with you this evening and, and this joint uh, event I'll start with a question why have I suggested the title Settler Colonialism in Ireland and Palestine for this lecture? My thinking of making a comparison between the settler colonialism in Palestine, which we think this was the, the unique and only case of settler colonialism in the world. Of course, this is not true. I started thinking of uh, linking the practices of settler colonialism in Palestine and the English settler colonialism in Ireland for the first time when I visited that country for the first time four years ago to attend a scientific conference and at that time I was uh, writing my book 100 years of uh, colonial settler colonialism and resistance during that visit I met fantastic response to my ideas because I was in the latter stages of writing my book and I engaged in long discussions with historians and writers in Ireland which made it even more apparent to me the importance of the Iranian uh, Irish experience over 850 years of contact we lived 120 years of settler colonialism. The Irish uh, lived with and still are living with settler colonialism in their country for 850 years. What I learned from them was a lot about the Irish, uh, the Irish experience uh, 
and uh, and uh, since that day I started studying this and researching into the patterns of settler colonialism in Ireland because we are talking about 800 years of uh, expulsion of farmers, oppression, uh, confiscating lands, etc., etc., of these practices. In fact, I found that there is a lot in this comparison, and from that day onwards, I started uh, studying. It was a long study. I thought this study will take me years until it's uh, completed, but uh, I think it's very important and very useful for us as Arabs and Palestinians to learn some lessons from the Irish experience. What I'll be presenting to you today are some of the preliminary findings after years of thinking and write, reading many books and articles and many discussions with Irish writers, thinkers, and historians. I must repeat that these are just preliminary uh, conclusions. I started digging up, and I realized that we really need to delve deep into these uh, aspects of Irish history. In fact, this requires a huge amount of deep research and attempts to understanding of the relationship between the English in Ireland and what they have done in their own empire afterwards. Indeed, uh, Ireland I've, was, in my opinion, the first experimentation lab for settler colonialism. Maybe, and this is not just my opinion, but this is the opinion of an important historian. I'll mention his name a little while. I'll focus on four main conclusions I have arrived at. The first is the importance of the experience that uh, England land and from seven, after 1707 it became Great Britain, the experience England has learned through its control over Ireland starting from the 12th century when the English excursion into Ireland began and which was important for the latter conquering of England elsewhere in the world. What they learned in Ireland, they practiced and applied elsewhere in the world. Ireland was the beginning. Ireland was the experimentation lab. This was very important for England's settler colonies. Of course, there is the kind of colonialism when the colonial power goes to a country and leaves some officers, officers and the army 
members or administrative staff and runs the country remotely, like uh, what happened in India, Egypt, Iraq, Nigeria, and elsewhere. There is also the, the other aspect of uh, uh, getting rid of the homogenous native population, either through genocide or expulsion or other means. In fact, Palestine was the last uh, uh, experiment by England, uh, Ireland being the first. Of course, there are differences between the two cancers. And similarly to Neil Ferguson, the famous right-wing historian said, Ireland was the experimentation lab and Ulster, the northeastern part of Ireland, Ulster was the, the uh, pilot scheme or the preliminary. Ireland was the experimental laboratory of British colonialism and Ulster was the prototype plantation. Plantation means like a farm, but what is meant is you don't plant seeds or other uh, produce, but you plant settlers too. Of course, I can add that the conquest of Ireland was the beginning of the British Empire and the independence of Ireland in 1920 was the beginning of the end of the uh, British Empire. So when we, uh, it was Ireland was not just a place where oppression was practiced. We'll talk afterwards about the means of also resisting. And so this is the important or first point that the experience England has gained was applied almost everywhere else. The second conclusion is that there is no perfect or ideal settler colonialism. There is some sort of an illusion by some academician that settler colonialism is one and the same. There is no such thing. There is no one perfect or model which can be said about all settler colonialism. Each settler colonialism is unique and different, and there are fundamental differences between the different models or examples. This is an important but secondary point. There is difference between Africa, Kenya, Rhodesia, South Africa, and Australia and others, and the Zionist model in Palestine. There are reasons for this comparison, but there are differences, many differences, in fact, between all different forms of settler colonialism on the one hand and the Zionist example on the other. Why? Because in most... Uh, colonies, European powers sent their own citizens, their own population to settle. The English sent English people from England. 
the French sent French people, Holland sent Dutch people to South Africa, France sent French people to Quebec. This was like the basic form of settler colonialism. The colonializing power sends its own population to uh, really to practice its sovereignty and and sometimes they expel or even to the point of genocide what happened this is what happened in australia north america you america and canada and new zealand and elsewhere of course the aim of all these countries was to add and annex these countries to their own like the the British flag used to fly over Canada, over Australia, Rhodesia, the United States, and South Africa. Of the English's aim in Palestine was to uh, practice their control, not sovereignty control over Palestine. But in, in Palestine, the Zionist settlers were not uh, from England. They're not coming as English people, coming as part of English empire to live there, to do the work of the British empire or English, English empire. Of course, with support of England and the British army, this is understood. Without this support, nothing would have happened. And as is the case in almost every settler colonialism everywhere in the world, whether done by the Dutch or the French or the British. And in Palestine, the aim of Britain was not to implant the Zionist movement to add or annex uh, Palestine to their uh, property or their territory, but it was to exercise control of, uh, through the Zionist movement by way of mandate from the League of Nations. This is a very important point we can revisit in the Q&A session. Of course, there are differences, many differences, many other differences between Palestine and most other examples of British settler colonialism. Chief amongst those is, is the British rule of Palestine in, for only 30 years. It was more than enough, yet in the 30 years, the Irish had to put up with them 750 years until the largest swathes of their country and land was liberated, until the British colonial powers are still in control of the northern part, Ulster, and it's called Northern Ireland. It's part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. This is my second conclusion. My third conclusion is that there are many similarities between the practices and, bet, bet, sorry, between the causes which led to British control over Ireland, which led also to the British control over Palestine. 
chief amongst these uh, causes in in the desire by Britain to exercise control over Palestine. The British went to Ireland for many reasons and to Palestine for many reasons, but in each of the two cases, the main reason for Britain's desire to exercise control is the strategic importance of these countries to Britain. The strategic factor in, in the opinion of all uh, historians in the case of Ireland is clear and decisive. Clear, for, uh, uh, one, of the, one of the most important British politicians, Lord Salisbury, in the 19th century, he was prime minister three times and he was in he was in power more in different forms for than 80 years from the mid 19th century to uh, 1902 Salisbury in 1983 said that if if Ireland was not with us it will be against us it will be again if Ireland is not with us she is against us like a pistol held to the mouths of the Clyde, the Mersey, and these are rivers leading to main ports in Britain, Liverpool, and other cities. This is Salisbury's opinion, who is probably the most important statesman in the 19th century. And because of his conviction of the importance of the strategic uh, factor to control uh, English control over Ireland, he fiercely resisted the independence of Ireland and even autonomy. Uh, it was called Home Rule uh, and uh, uh, Salisbury and his uh, party, the Tory party or the Conservative party was the staunchest uh, opponent of that and this was until 1995. This was not only Salisbury's uh, opinion, it was also the opinion of another person. He, he was his nephew, another English aristocrat, a famous English aristocrat who, who served as prime minister, he served as foreign secretary and as other in other ministries and government department many times he this was his position too and that's the absolute rejection of uh, of uh, ireland's uh, independence uh, his nephew is known his name is arthur balfour lord balfour he is known to us for other reasons balfour was the staunchest opponent of Irish autonomy, home rule, and uh, later independence. It's well known what he's done to us. There is no need whatsoever to delve into any details. Uh, by the way, there is an ing uh, uh, I learned about the, the when I heard when when I mentioned his name in Ireland, they used to call him bloody Balfour, because he was the minister in charge of Irish affairs 
after his uncle, his maternal uncle. He was only 30 years of age. He was in charge of Irish affairs and he was responsible for the execution of many uh, Irish resistant people in the 80s of the 19th century. And until now, they, whenever you mention Balfour's name in Ireland, they say, ah, yes, bloody Balfour, we know this man. Because of this strategic and important uh, factor, the British uh, in the 19th century and 20th century rejected Ireland's independence until the Irish Revolution, which uh, culminated in victory in 1921, which in the end, at least the southern part of Ireland became independent, but of course uh, Britain kept the northern Irish uh, part in Northern Ireland. Of course, in Palestine there are many reasons for Britain, like religious and other motives, but the most important motive is the strategic one, and this became apparent when a very severe crisis uh, appeared between uh, Britain and the Ottoman Empire in April 1906, known as the Al-Aqaba Crisis. This, is, this was the theme of my thesis in 1970, 70s, when Britain sent parts of its fleet against uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid II, and the crisis ended according to the will and desire of, uh, of uh, Britain, and this was the first time the borders were drawn, Egypt's borders, and these borders were imposed despite the will of the Ottoman Empire, and after threatening the Ottoman Empire and deploying the British fleet because of the fear. Lord Cromer was the British Governor General of Egypt, the High Commissioner, and they were frightened of an Ottoman advance from the east and cutting off the Suez Canal, and this is what happened in World War One. My uncle, two of my uncles, took part in the Jamal Pasha's campaign. They reached the Suez Canal and they cut off the Suez Canal, and the direct contact between England and the Indian subcontinent was severed due to this campaign. In these uh, years, after 1906, until World War I broke out, the political and military and strategic leaders in Britain realized that they should have a control over Palestine to be the shield to protect Egypt's borders, and especially the Suez Canal, which was the main strategic supply line which linked the area to the Indian Ocean and the Indian subcontinent. Uh, of course, Palestine was also important as a western station on the shortest land routes between the Mediterranean and the Gulf 
Arabian Gulf because at that time they were thinking of the railway line between Palestine and Basra, but later on when they controlled the area, the, all the roads, uh, oil pipeline, airports were established, and this uh, convictions became even more established amongst the British politicians about the importance of Palestine to defend Egypt were, were consolidated by many plans, many plans, military plans, and other steps, including Britain banning other European powers of establishing any railway lines in Palestine because they said at that time, they were not even in control of Palestine, but they said, this area belongs to us and it's forbidden for any European country to, to build railway lines in Palestine. All of this was in fear of the Ottoman Empire uh, uh, establishing the Hejaz Railway to Aqaba, and then they can move troops to Egypt, and this is what happened in World War II. The clear evidence of that, and it was, this was the British strategic thinking, what was said by Ronald Stoes, he is, he was a well-known Orientalist, he was a British official in Egypt, and the first military governor in, Egypt, in uh, Jerusalem after it was occupied 1919. He said Britain's political aim in Palestine was to create for England a small Jewish Alistair faithful a present uh, in the midst of uh, our aim. In other words, is aiming for England a little loyal Jewish Alistair in a sea of hostile Arabism. He wrote this in his memoirs. This, is, this was the third conclusion, that Ireland was important for strategic reasons, so was Palestine for strategic importance. The others were important, but for secondary reasons. My fourth preliminary conclusion, uh, and now this, emanates from Ferguson's description of Ireland as being the first colonial laboratory. And this was especially true when it comes to oppression and the legal systems, the unjust English system, and which was called counterinsurgency. The theories of counterinsurgency lasted for a long time and were developed in Ireland and later in Palestine. In the following, I'll focus on a number of individuals who moved from Ireland and other parts of the British Empire, especially after uh, the defeat of Britain after the War of Independence in Ireland at the hands of Irish revolutionaries and moved to Palestine taking with them their experience and the oppressive means and practices they learned. In Palestine, they did not practice on us, but they also taught the leaders of Jewish bands this too. I'll come back to this point. After the British mandate in Palestine, 
this move to Palestine and from Palestine to the rest of the British Empire, they took part in acts, in counter-revolutions in uh, Kenya, uh, Oman, and elsewhere. After that, they went back to the uh, to Britain when they went back to Ireland uh, in the time known as the Troubles from 68 to 98. I'll revisit this point. Very quickly, we must also uh, mention an important uh, thing, and that is most of decision-makers in Britain during World War I regarding Palestine and Ireland were the same people, the same individuals who were in charge of the Irish affairs and the British uh, thinking in Palestine. Lloyd George, Prime Minister Balfour, Foreign Secretary Churchill, uh, uh, Sea Lord and Navy Minister, and then Prime Minister. These people fought and struggled against the Irish people, and the Irish people fought against them until they gained their independence. At the same time, they played a major role in denying the Palestinian people of the right to independence through the Balfour Declaration and through implanting the Zionist movement in our country. I'll talk, I'll be alluding to some other individuals who implemented these decisions on the ground. The decisions which were taken in London by Lloyd George Churchill and Balfour and the like. I'll talk about three ones out of them. You know the Irish Republican Army uh, beat the British Army in the three-year war from 1919 to 1921. After this defeat, Britain was forced to withdraw from the southern part of Ireland, not only its army, but their, uh, their armed police, known as the Royal Irish Constabulary, and with them the auxiliaries who support the regular police, and with them an army or a force of mercenaries. They use them black and tans because, because of the black uniforms and they were known to engage in the worst practices. They burned down the city of Cork after an ambush by the Republican army which led to the killing of some British officers. All of them, were, when were they withdrawn, were taken with them by, by Winston Churchill. He was uh, colonial secretary. These experts in oppression were sent to Palestine to, fork the new, to, to form the, the nucleus for the Palestine Gendarmerie. And this new force played an active role in oppressing all the revolutions uh, in the 20s and 30s in Palestine. And the General Tudor, Hen Sir Henry Tudor was their commander. This was not the only example of uh, 
transferring this uh, this kind of expertise from Ireland to Palestine and from Palestine to other parts of British Empire. I'll focus on three British officers who played a main role in this, like collective punishment. They brought this into Palestine. Also, torturing of uh, prisoners, also executing uh, prisoners of war, destroying public and private property. They brought that into Palestine. Also, also the administrative uh, uh, detention. This was also a British idea. And like uh, the Arabist units, now the Israeli Arabist units, uh, they dress up in Arab attire and mix with the population to carry out attacks. All these uh, tactics which were practiced against the Irish in Ireland, the English brought them into Palestine. I will not have time to allude to all of them. One Captain Old Wingate, he, was, he became a major general at the end, said Charles Teagart and one General St. Frank Kitson. I'll give a brief idea about each one of them. The first one, O-R-D-E, a strange name. He is a Christian Zionist. He was like carrying, carrying the Bible and believing firmly that Palestine belongs to, to the Jews. He started with the British military uh, intelligence in the Sudan, and he was well known for the ferocity of his torturing of prisoners. He became well known for that, notorious for that. He is the nephew of General Sir Reginald Wingate, who was the governor general of Sudan and Egypt. Also, uh, like uh, his nephew, the uncle, be started with British intelligence, and Wingate used to speak Arabic fluently. He used to interrogate prisoners, like his uncle, General Wingate. He is uh, an Orientalist Arabist. The British Army brought Wingate to Palestine in 1936 when the Arab revolt started and faced by, by the victories achieved by the revolutionaries, Wingate suggested to the British military command the forming of mixed units from the British Army and some selected members of the Haganah and Palmer special Nazi squads, squads, they were told, special Nazi squads. This invention was as a result of the culminating of lessons by Wingate's uh, campaigns in the Sudan and elsewhere, Ireland and elsewhere, uh, from other parts of the British Empire. Of course, uh, everybody who was trained by Wingate had a very famous professional path. The names are well known. 
משה דיין, have you heard of him? יגאל אלון, יצחק שדה, the first uh, chief of staff of the Israeli army, he taught them executions, blowing up of houses, oppressive measures. All of them were taught personally by him when they were junior officers. According to the confessions by the Israeli leaders, the role of Wingate was a founding one in the establishment of the Israeli army and its doctrine. Itzhak Sadeh called Wingate our leader, our command, commander. Diane said he taught us everything we know. Ben-Gurion said the same thing. And the Israeli journalist, I forgot his name, who wrote the history of the Israeli army, said the same thing about him. Of course, this was not the, uh, the, what the English leaders of what Wingate was doing, that they thought he overdid it. Churchill said he's too mad for command. General Montgomery Uh, Field Marshal Montgomery, the leader of the commander of the British Army in the world, said he is unbalanced, mentally unbalanced. He was insane, it seems, and he, he was psychopathic. This is the person who is the, the godfather or the founding father of the Israeli army, and, and we hear that And, and Dr. Azmi reminded us today there are squares in Israel named after Wingate. The second person was Sir Charles Teagart, T-E-G-A-R-T, Sir Charles Teagart. He started his professional path with the British police in India and later on he became the, the commander of the police. the chief commissioner in Calcutta. He was an expert in torture and interrogation. He started uh, centers like that in the Andaman uh, Islands. When the Irish uh, Revolution started, he was sent to Dublin to <coughs> practice his profession as he knows best, like in the Dublin Castle, And you can visit the dungeons there to see the places of uh, oppression and also the Karmana area when he executed the revolutionaries in 1917. He took part in both interrogating and executing rebels. Uh, uh, when, when the British army was defeated in Ireland, He went back to India. The Indians didn't like him, as it seems. They attempted to assassinate him six times, but they fought. When you read, when you read the stories about Andaman prison, you understand why. After the revolution in Palestine, 1936, this expert in torture and interrogation was moved to Palestine to benefit from his... expertise, and Teagart did very well from their point of view in Palestine when 
when he started a series of Arab investigation centers, centers of torture, in other words, similarly to what he used to do in India. And uh, in fact, he built these centers according to his own experiences in Ireland and India. He had another invention to his name who started small forts, small forts called Teagard Falls. Some of them are still in existence today, used by the Israeli occupation forces, and some are used by the Palestinian authorities, security officer, officers, for the same oppressive reasons used by the British the Israelis. The third and last person is General Sir Frank Kitson. Kitson did not serve in Palestine. He joined the army in World War II. He never served in Palestine, but Kitson was the most important and the most intelligent pupils and students of Wingate. He developed all Wingate's uh, inventions and theories in the field of counterinsurgency, which he, which Wingate uh, gathered in Palestine. He applied them in new ways during his service in the British Army in, uh, in the Malayan Revolution, Malaysia now, in Aden, Oman, Kenya and Cyprus and other places in the British. He was as a field military commander and as a theoretician also. He wrote two important books. The books are published and available. There is a new edition of his last book, which he wrote in 1970. In these two books, he summarized the lessons from Wingate's experiences, the, the most important book in which he applied gangs and counter-gangs, this was the title, and in it he said uh, that uh, the armies and the forces in charge with counter uh, to use camouflage and wear the same dress-up as the revolutionaries, and this was like the gist of the book, and he learned that and extracted that completely from Wingate's experience in Palestine. After uh, finishing his last book on the theories of counter, uh, when he was in a sabbatical in Oxford, there was a crisis in Northern Ireland. This important officer was transferred to Northern Ireland as commander of the Belfast region and the Parachute Regiment, who were very famous uh, during all British colonial campaigns. They're known for their ferocity and oppressiveness. And Kitson was one of them. He was their commander in Ireland. Of course, Northern Ireland in that, at that time was about to enter into the, begin the phase of uh, troubles in 1968. But when he reached to Belfast, 
the main methodology adopted by the Irish minority was a peaceful one led by the civil rights movement, demonstrations and others. And in that period, the Irish Republican Army and the, the provisional IRA was not in action. After the arrival of Kitson in a few months, the British Army's activity was increased, especially the paratroop regiment under the command of Kitson. And he used the same, he started using the same oppressive uh, means he used to use in Ireland, Kenya, and Malaysia in 1971. Battalion from the paratroopers under the direct command of Kitson opened fire on civilians and 11 civilians were killed. None of them was armed. 20 years later, it was apparent that none of them was armed. At the time of the incident, they said they were terrorists. 1972, the same unit uh, the, the support company of the 1st Battalion of the Parachute Regiment opened fire again on a demonstration, a mass demonstration led by the civil rights movement in the Derry, the country of Derry, known as the Bloody Sunday, and there is a film about it. And in this massacre, 14 unarmed civilians were killed. According to many analysts, Kitson and his oppressive means played a major role in the escalation in Northern Ireland and in uh, causing the uh, civil rights movement's efforts to fail. And this led to the act of the, the IRA, provisional IRA, starting their military campaign, which ended in the 90s, 1990s. Kitson was not punished or disciplined despite these uh, atrocities. He, became, he was promoted to become a four-star general and commander of the British land forces. And he ended, he ended his professional life by being the military advisor to the British monarch. Queen Elizabeth, the late Queen Elizabeth. And of course, uh, at the end of his life, General Kitson had to live under uh, uh, very tight security measures because the Irish Republican Army was threatening to assassinate him. They say they tried a few times but did not succeed. What lessons should we uh, try and get out of this as Palestinians and Arabs. I only presented you the small part of the comparison. The most important thing is to study the history of the two settled colonialism. We think Palestine is the only and unique case. It's not, especially when we have to understand the history of other people's histories, the ones who failed, the ones who succeeded in their struggle against settler colonialism. We must also study the theories and practices of the colonial 
powers themselves because they use the same methods everywhere. The Israelis are doing exactly like what the English did. They developed them uh, a little bit, but in essence, they are one and the same. We must study all these methods. We must do that with full realization of the differences and the conditions of people in general and the Palestinian people between our conditions and circumstances and the condition and circumstances of other people. Our struggle is different than other people because the Zionist movement is different than other settler colonial movements. The other cases form the part of the metropole. The, in the case of France, they sent French people to go and settle in, uh, in Algeria. So did the English and other colonial powers, whereas the Zionists always rely on outside uh, a metropole from Britain, the U.S. and others, and they still 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 as a small part of the metropole reliant on on uh, on the United States in Algeria the French metropole in Algeria had only the French army in Alger in Algeria to rely on in Palestine this is different you must always realize that it's impossible to apply lessons learned from other people's experiences despite the circumstances. The Irish people, for example, achieved a partial victory. They liberated three parts of their country against the British colonial power in 1921 under certain conditions and after a series of severe international and local crises that the British Empire went through and there was revolutions against the British in Britain in, in Egypt 1919 in Iraq in 2020 and the Bolshevik within from the 1917s to the end of the revolution and at the same time they had to face the Irish revolutionaries they faced revolutionaries elsewhere and the Irish was the only people who managed to gain their independence between World War I and World War II. The Irish people were the only people who gained their independence from colonial imperialist control in that period. Finally, we have to study the settler colonialism not as a static theory or an un changing durable pattern but as a collection of certain different cases different and diverse each case has its own specificity of course palestine is not south africa palestine is not algeria palestine is not northern ireland or ireland but we can learn and benefit from the experiences of all these people in the resistance they showed against colonialism and also through studying the methods and tactics by the colonial powers to consolidate our struggle for the liberation of Palestine.
Thank you so much, Dr. Al-Khalidi, for this valuable presentation and lecture. And of course, we will have many questions. Uh, Dr. Al-Khalidi actually presented several uh, similarities between the two experiences uh, that we need to consider in order to understand the current struggle in Palestine and maybe look into the potential future solutions in Palestine based on other experiences, uh, be it in Ireland or in other countries suffering from settler colonialism. So now we give the opportunity uh, for you to ask your questions. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Rashid. I'm here, I'm here. Thank you so much for this uh, valuable presentation, for this valuable lecture. Uh, welcome to the Arab Center. Welcome in Doha. Uh, I have a question, uh, uh, which is to what extent can we say that the uh, settler colonialism is not a specific type. It is a, a main component in the uh, colonial vision, the traditional uh, vision of colonialism. So if we, if we are to expand our study, not only to cover Ireland and Palestine, but also other cases, this idea uh, of uh, basically expelling the uh, people who live in territories and replace them with foreigners. Uh, this actually is a component of the traditional view of uh, colonialism. And now, actually, I am thinking, based on what you have uh, expressed uh, during your lecture, so the British uh, colonialism and uh, the case of Iraq before the 1920s between the India uh, school and Cairo school. So maybe you can provide evidence. So the India uh, school was actually saying that the demographic solution in India would be through uh, Iraq and actually we're talking about components of the British administration and actually we can shed light on the debate within the uh, uh, British administrative uh, uh, colonial power. So this is actually a general view. It's not a specific or exceptional uh, situation or case. And uh, I do not think we should separate between the traditional colonialism and the settler uh, colonialism. Thank you so much, Dr. Haider, for your question. In my opinion, I think there's a huge difference between the traditional colonialism and most types of uh, settler colonialism. The actual difference is that settler colonialism not only wants to expel uh, the 
residents of a certain region to replace them with white European settlers, but also transforming the country from one thing to another. This is what Israel is doing today, and this is what happened in North America. I live in New York, and New York is not based on uh, the names of the cities of the uh, aboriginals, of the Indians, that this is basically an English uh, name. So uh, this is one of the means of the settler colonialism, not only expelling the population, but also transforming everything in the target country towards uh, the uh, uh, view of the settler colonialist. As to the traditional colonialism, they do not necessarily want to expel the population, but use them or exploit them. South Africa is a mixture, actually, between uh, traditional colonialism, because they needed labor, they needed African laborers to uh, work in mines, to work in agricultural territories, and at the same time, they expel them from other territories, so Algeria as well. So maybe you are right when it comes to some patterns of uh, settler uh, colonialism. However, when it comes to the pure definition of this colonialism, I, I beg to differ. I think the Israelis uh, are heading towards uh, pure settler colonialism. They want to... Uh, finish us, just like what happened in Australia and New Zealand and uh, America. Of course, there are degrees, and there's a huge difference between Algeria, uh, for instance, and other uh, places, like the number of settlers versus the number of uh, uh, original people. So uh, it is very important, uh, the settlers of North America actually eventually ended up being uh, uh, outnumbered uh, the uh, population. But in Algeria or in Palestine, they could not do that. Our people outnumbered them. In Palestine, 120 years after the beginning of this attempt to expel the Palestinian people from Palestine. so. In some cases, there is a mixture of traditional colonialism and settler colonialism. However, in my opinion, there is a difference between the two patterns. Dr. Khaled? Thank you so much. Dr. Rashid, uh, my dear friend, you are welcome uh, in Doha. Once again, so uh, I have a comment regarding one part of your lectures, and I also have a question regarding a concept you mentioned. So I remembered a book that I uh, read two years ago, but uh, I forgot the name of the author, an officer from the Irish who used to work in Black Intensity, yes. So he was 22 years old. Uh, uh, he was an uh, evangelical uh, Christian, and he uh, had the Bible actually in his hands, and he wanted to see the places mentioned in the in the Bible. The problem that uh, he uh, that mentioned in uh, the book 
So uh, uh, they used to mention to the people of Nablus uh, as uh, subhuman. So they killed one of uh, them, and his uh, head was uh, decapitated. And uh, one of the jokes is that this is the head of this person from Nablus, and uh, the best thing is to decapitate them. So my question anyway, Dr. Rashid, when we talk about or when we study settler colonialism and when we put Palestine with Ireland, with Australia, with, of course, America, etc., there's a trend uh, lately in the in academia uh, as if we're uh, actually talking about case studies. It's um, academic uh, discussion, but it is not a resistance uh, topic. So these old topics, Australia, North America, etc., this is part of history. Uh, some people might still be fighting for their rights. However, when you put Palestine in this category of case study, it's as if we're talking about a theoretical aspect, not a living uh, case that belongs to the present. Other case studies belong to the past, history, a microphone. Um, so Palestine is still a colonial case, uh, for instance, Canada. Canada, is it's a thing uh, from the past. So as uh, academics, as uh, political activists, we have some sort of confusion. So as if we're supporting Palestine from an academic viewpoint, but there is no action after that. Thank you. I agree to a certain extent with you. In reality, in my opinion, we can benefit from these studies. Basically, lessons learned for our struggle. This is definitely not academia. Uh, we need. Um, on the contrary, to understand what the Israelis are doing um, from the people who taught them these means. We need to learn the means of resistance from the successes and failures in uh, resisting uh, settler colonialism. It is true that uh, some academics think that struggle is basically writing uh, uh, articles. Uh, this is why I am here to discuss it with an Arab audience about this key topic. However, I would like to tell you something. In reality, these uh, academic uh, researchers, uh, like the Junior Palestine, Palestine Studies, there's the downloads is approximately 200,000 articles per year. So students, uh, journalists, uh, professors. I do not know exactly who is downloading, but they are actually learning about Palestine. And this shift in the public opinion in the United States, of course, is not the result of our work, but we influence uh, through this uh, research uh, even at the political level. So I agree with you. Uh, some members of the academic circle uh, live in like some sort of parallel universe and think that this is about struggle. We uh, need to talk about real struggle on the ground. Hassan Al-Barari, 
thank you, doctor, for your valuable lecture. And uh, I would like to say that there's a difference uh, uh, between uh, uh, the Israeli colonialism and the other movements in Europe. There's uh, the uh, Askala, which is uh, the Jewish movement that had uh, plans away from the British uh, imperialism and colonialism. They tried with the Ottomans, uh, they tried with the Germans, they tried with Napoleon before them. So there were, there were attempts to uh, have settlements in uh, Palestine. So uh, it's different than the uh, case of Algeria. This leads me to my question. The uh, first exile uh, in uh, 82, uh, although it wasn't a purely Zionist, but the idea was there to go there and create a new reality. And there were some theorists who actually talked about that, and that came before the colonialism of Palestine. So when we talk about uh, resistance means, sometimes they are available. However, when it comes to the Israeli case, uh, you talked about the fact that the Palestinian people outnumber uh, the uh, uh, Jewish population. They do not accept the two-state solution, and the Israeli society is uh, shifting towards the right. Netanyahu, for instance, uh, is actually uh, now amidst all the craziness uh, considered a moderate. They do not also accept the one-state solution. They do not ex uh, accept the uh, Palestinians uh, who are also have uh, the citizenship of uh, Israel, so they, they they have this idea of uh, racism with uh, several repercussions. So the question is, what is the lesson learned? How can the Palestinian people continue in their fight and their resistance of this settler colonialism? And they are not trying to hide the fact that they want to uh, finish them. Uh, there's also several propositions, uh, the regional solution, and also transfer suggested by uh, some extremists. Uh, in the Arab world uh, that is fluctuating when it comes to the alliances and Iran for some key Arab countries is now the main uh, threat uh, and not Israel. And according to some of the elite ruling the region, Israel is actually a factor of stability in the region. So the uh, region, what's the question? What's the question? So based on your analysis, what can the Palestinian people do in order to reach the state, the Palestinian state? If had I had a solution, I wouldn't have uh, come here and tackled this topic. I would talk about the solution. I do not have a solution. However, uh, based on what I have talked about and what you have mentioned is, uh, we can say that there is no settler colonialism without uh, a mother country and metropole. And Weizmann, what he understood, uh, Haskalah and other people did not understand. Uh, they understood Herzl. Uh, he went to the Caesar. They wa he went to the f to the French. He did not succeed. Uh, Weizmann succeeded with the British. They understood. They need a foreign sponsor or patron. They are not like French settlers. France would defend them. They are not like English settlers uh, in Canada because England would defend them. No, they need to find 
another uh, sponsor, another patron. There is no Jewish state to protect them in their colonial endeavors and settling endeavors in Palestine. This is a key lesson today. And we think that struggle on the ground is the only thing. No, it is a key component, of course. But cutting this relation between settling in Palestine and also the patrons outside is very important. So the struggle in the United States, in Europe, this is the stronghold. This is the metropole of Zionism in the world. Israel is independent, but Israeli Israelis totally rely on them. Where was Ben-Gurion uh, during the World War? They were in New York, actually building the basis of the Zionist lobby, which is technically not a lobby. It is a system that was built 115 years ago. They understood that the United States is coming, and they were working all over Europe in order to set the foundation for their project in Palestine. Very unfortunately, our leadership and leadership throughout the 30s, the 40s, and later on, unfortunately, they did not get it. Thank God, now we have the youth, and they do get it. They work in US universities. They are the youth. Uh, the activists in the United States, they do understand this organic relationship between America and Israel, and without it, Israel would not succeed. Of course, uh, uh, the United States is not our exclusive place of work, but it is a key uh, ground for the work that we do, just like the Arab world, just like uh, Europe. This is not a solution, but this is an analysis that needs to be taken into account. Where should we focus our efforts. What should we do? How should we deal not only with the U.S. government but with the people of the United States? The Zionists started from the bottom up. This is how they could affect the Congress and talk to the National Security Advisor, etc. When Ben Gurion was there, he wasn't talking to anyone, uh, as opposed to uh, Lloyd George and Balford and the other example. And they were initially Zionists. Uh, however. We have a long uh, pathway ahead of us, and we barely started, very unfortunately. But thankfully, we started. So can we actually take a series of questions? Yes, this would be better. Maybe with, uh, of course, please introduce yourselves. And please be brief in your questions, and have direct questions, please. Majid Abdel Hadi. I will be very brief. Uh, so I am really uh, uh, interested in your second uh, outcome or conclusion uh, regarding the uh, similarity when it comes to the strategic importance between Ireland and Palestine. We are talking about history. We are talking about the Ottoman Empire. Uh, my question to uh, Dr. Rashid today. So to what extent this strategic importance is an uh, influencing factor when it comes to the Palestinian struggle? Is it still the same or uh, uh, declined? And my question regarding what Israel wants, the Israeli interest, and also the Palestinian interest in resisting occupation, how important this strategic position is today? Thank you.
Thank you. Saja Turwan. Saja Turwan. So uh, I have a very simple question. During your lecture, you presented the mechanisms uh, that lead to the development of the settlers. However, uh, the people uh, who were replaced by the settlers uh, were not uh, highlighted. So since we're talking about similarities, maybe as Palestinian people, we can benefit from the Irish people's resistance and patterns and mechanisms and maybe Israel is dealing with us as a lab uh, so we are trying to learn as much as possible but also uh, they are learning from their experience in order to control the uh, Palestinian people and the divided territories of Palestine so my question is regarding the uh, uh, Irish uh, resistance, this collective punishment that you have mentioned, administrative arrest, etc. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, I actually have two quick points. Uh, so to what extent uh, this comparative study took into account the governments. Uh, so the uh, English had the indirect colonial role. Uh, they contributed to creating local systems to facilitate the governance. In Ireland, they had uh, the home rule as a movement. Uh, I do not know to what extent they were capable of uh, uh, ruling. Uh, but when it comes to the Palestinians, after uh, 67, the Begin autonomy plan, and now actually uh, many members of the Palestinian Authority uh, fall in this uh, uh, context. Uh, so my second question is, I agree uh, with you, there is a big difference between the different patterns of settler colonialism. However, the Palestinian cause is very specific a unique case. First of all, we're talking about uh, the 20 to the 21st century. This is a structural difference uh, when we talk about Palestine, a mixture of traditional colonialism and settler colonialism. But did we take uh, into account this neo-colonialism, for instance, uh, the World Bank, the IMF, foreign donors, uh, foreign conditions, on the people who are suffering from the settling policies. So we are not only talking about Israeli uh, power. I do, I do not think that uh, in the other cases uh, this was the same. Would you like to answer these questions? Yes. Thank you. So, regarding the first question, is there still a strategic importance for to, to Palestine? I think yes. Yes, the strategic factor is still very important. The Israelis are smart in marketing the importance, the strategic importance of Israel to the uh, U.S. Uh, patron. They said during the Cold War, we are your instrument, your tool in your war against the Soviet Union. So against the Egyptian army armed by the Soviets, we help you with the Cold War. The Cold War was over and then we moved to the war on terror. 
we are your main allies in the region, etc. So you know the story. And now Israel is being promoted as a gateway to the Arab world through the normalizing of the relations and as a shield in the region defending Gulf countries currently allied with Israel against Iran. So you have uh, Russia and Europe, you have a lot of issues with Russia and China. Leave this strategic uh, region for us. We would, or leave it to us, we would help you out. So I still think that the strategic factor is very important for Israel. Sometimes we're talking about public relations. Uh, uh, sometimes it's not true, but if the Americans are convinced, that's it, end of story. And they were convinced, the Cold War, the war on terror, and just like we're seeing now, the uh, issue of uh, normalizing, it is growing actually with Biden. Microphone, please. Yes, they are still in the region, but we all know that the entire focus was on our region. Uh, for 20 years, uh, the American wars were between Afghanistan and Libya. Now we're not seeing, we're not going to see um, American wars in the region. It would be, God forbid, Israel and other uh, allies fighting the future wars. As to the resistance patterns. In reality, we need to study the patterns of resistance of all these peoples, their failures and their successes. The Irish people actually had several um, experiences and attempts to uh, do away with the uh, British uh, uh, rule uh, until the 20th century. Most of these attempts failed uh, categorically, but uh, um, they understood, most of them understood these tactics and tried to adopt uh, a clear strategy, and we can actually learn from them. Several things are tactical. For instance, some people say, no, uh, so this is not important. Uh, we only talk about uh, armed struggle. But the Irish people uh, they started in 1916 in the revolution in Dublin, so Easter Rising uh, in 1916. They started with the armed struggle. MPs uh, used to be elected and sent to London. In 1919, all of the MPs decided to withdraw from the British Parliament and create the Irish Parliament. So three years before the independence of Ireland, they said, we are not Irish MPs in a British Parliament. We are Irish MPs in an Irish Parliament in Dublin. They were tortured. They, some of them died in prison. But that was part of a regime with uh, an aspect of PR and also actually tax uh, collection. Eamon de Valera actually served several uh, years uh, in, the, in America collecting funds and gathering uh, American support uh, to the revolution. So uh, they worked militarily 
at the level of the parliament and also public relations. And as I have said, they actually uh, were victorious because of the crisis uh, uh, that the British had uh, faced but also other factors and we can learn from Algeria, South Africa and also from the people who were defeated. <clears throat> so several points regarding the following question. The English in Ireland never accepted an indirect rule or home rule because of the opposition of the Conservative Party, the Salisbury Party. So they, uh, there was never a home rule administrative rule because of the opposition of the king, the army, the House of Lords, and the British aristocracy. They were fiercely opposed to this point. There was several attempts at the level of the House of Commons, but the House of Lords never accepted until World War One, and then it was cancelled. So it was never implemented. So practically, it was a direct rule by the English in Ireland. So direct rule. An Englishman was in Dublin and the fortress, and he was the person in charge in Ireland. However, they ruled Ireland through the Irish, the Royal Irish Constabulary. They were Irish. Several uh, employees, officials, uh, members of the intelligence were Irish, Catholic and Protestants. So any settler, in order for them to succeed, they need to use their agents. Otherwise, their success would be impossible. Of course, Palestine is a different case for several reasons, and I have mentioned one reason. The Zionists are not Americans or English. They want to create their country in our territories. The people actually who came to Algeria wanted the Algerie Francaise, the Algeria affiliated with France. The same thing applies to Canada, affiliated with the British. But the Zionists, uh, of course, uh, it's different, completely different, in addition to other differences. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you, Dr. Khaldi Amr, third-year student, uh, Georgetown University in Qatar. I had a question regarding our role as students, uh, non-Palestinian or even Palestinians of the diaspora. How can we help the resistance on the ground? Because recently I have seen in social media circles there is some sort of split between what is happening on the ground and the activism on social media. So I would like to know your opinion in order to improve what we're offering. I would like to get some questions, maybe two questions from Zoom. So we have a question. 
Dr. Rajal Khaldi is asking, so settler colonialism in South Africa transformed into an apartheid regime. Several people are saying that this is ongoing in Palestine. So uh, can we set this comparison in order to understand the Palestinian context currently? There's another question from Ashraf Badr. So Dr. Khaldi talked about the French colonialism in Algeria by the French, and several people have the impression that uh, the uh, settlers were French. Uh, however, in reality, it was only 11% of the settlers of Algeria. Uh, uh, the remaining percentage were from Spain, uh, Switzerland, uh, Malta, and other countries. Is it accurate information? And also some people are saying that uh, the Zionist settler colonialism is different because it is a colonial project with no mother country. Let me please answer these three questions. Let me start with the last one. It is true. I do not know the percentage, but a huge uh, number of uh, European uh, settlers were Portuguese in Algeria, were Portuguese, Spanish, Italian, Maltese, and Greek. However, they became French throughout 130 years between uh, their first arrival, uh, 19th, 20th century and after uh, the success of the British of the Algerian Revolution sorry in 62 they became French so there was not enough French to populate the country so it was an open invitation in Marseille for instance if you read the names Sanchez Boldini so Spanish and Italian names uh, so uh, they're called uh, Pienoir, settler, settlers, basically. Uh, they returned from Algeria. They went in Spanish, they left French. So uh, Mr. Ashraf is actually uh, right. So, but actually, my brother's question, <laughs> he could have asked this question directly. I saw him two weeks ago. <laughs> I will answer him anyway. So the apartheid, the, it is uh, a pattern. It is one of the settler colonialism patterns. It is a specific uh, pattern. The situation in South Africa is different to other settler colonialism because we're talking about Dutch who fought the British and fled the north in order to preserve their independence and at the same time they used to uh, oppress the black so there was uh, 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 this struggle between the three parties Canada the same thing the original settlers were French and then the, the British arrived in 1763 and took control of the country 100 years uh, had to pass before they outnumbered the French. Eventually, they became Canadian, affiliated with the uh, British Crown. And, uh, of course, uh, there's some uh, um, attempts to even independence uh, for the Quebec. So, in my opinion, the South African model is specific and... Uh, 
actually uh, who was uh, one of the people who uh, created uh, the apartheid and uh, he said that uh, Israel is uh, an apartheid regime and we are proud that they are following in our steps uh, so uh, Mr. Al-Amiri the role of the people outside as I have said there are several spaces and platforms uh, of course the Palestinian uh, uh, territory is, is key but also the Arab world we are in an Arab country the public opinion is very important your center here carries out the most important public opinion surveys and they show that most of the Arab population in every country is against normalizing the relations with Israel to include in the countries where the normalization t took place so this shows that there is a space uh, for this kind of work in the Arab world the same thing applies to the US and Europe there is uh, a persecution and oppression attacks on activists uh, working uh, to further the rights of the Palestinian maybe the situation in Germany is uh, dire in France and England and the US it is all bad my daughter works uh, in an NGO its only work uh, is to defend Palestinian activists within universities, uh, whether students or professors. 300, 400 cases per year. It's endless work, uh, uh, harassment, uh, actually pressing charges against uh, uh, professors and students, uh, defamation and uh, thank god the, the the situation despite all that in u.s universities is very uh, strong uh, it's very good in some campuses we are stronger than zionists uh, when i was in yale university in the 70s when golda Meir uh, arrived to deliver a lecture there was 1000 receiving her and we were four to oppose her a lebanese a sudanese uh, an american and myself but now, when any Zionist arrive, uh, arrives to campus, hundreds are opposed. Of course, hundreds are with. But this is an amazing progress that was not there 100 years ago, 50 years ago. Every voice raised at the level of the Congress is actually uh, dealt with. Actually, uh, several uh, of our supporters failed in the primaries. But most of them were elected and will be re-elected in November. This is new. We never had anybody defending us in the U.S. Congress throughout the history of the Palestinian cause, except for one or two people. And they worked to defeat them, McCroskey, etc. Maybe four or five people throughout the history. Now we're talking about the dozen. We have senators, actually, who ask questions. Shireen Abu Agli there needs to be an investigation it's not my opinion a senator Dan Holland is talking about it and several other people so these are very important spaces for the Palestinian struggle all of them the Arab the European and the American thank you so much doctor we need to uh, conclude uh, thank you so much uh, uh, for your valuable lecture Thank you all for being with us, uh, be it in person and through Zoom or social media. Thank you so much.